Welcome to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. A week ago, a lightning strike hit a large oil storage tank in Cuba, Matanzas, Cuba, igniting a fire and injuring 125 people, killing two firefighters, and has left 14 people still missing. The fire raged for five days, destroying 40% of the island's main fuel storage facility. It's the largest port on the island for receiving fuel imports and crude oil. Fuel oil and diesel are held in eight storage tanks, which are usually mainly used to generate electricity on the island. Four of the tanks were lost amid this fire and explosions that went through this facility. Cuban officials have not yet said how much oil was lost in the fire. Just the uh, latest disaster to uh, impact certainly Cubans on the island, uh, certainly impacting the Cuban economy, which is already in uh, straits, and also impacting relations between the United States and Havana. I'll talk about that here today on the South Florida Roundup. We'd love to hear your calls as well. Do you have family in this area of uh, Cuba? What are they uh, telling you about this fire? What are they experiencing on the island over the past several months with the Cuban economy? 800-743-WLRN, our phone number live on this Friday to join our conversation, 800-743-9576. Jorge Pinon is with us now, University of Texas at Austin, where he's the director of Latin America and Caribbean Energy Program. Jorge, welcome to WLRN here in South Florida. There's been some speculation that maybe it wasn't a lightning strike that ignited this blaze. What can you tell us about uh, about what could be the possible causes? Uh, it seems that the primary investigation suggests that it was a, uh, a lightning strike. Uh, I think it's too early. Uh, I'm sure they will have to do a thorough and deep uh, investigation on what caused uh, the incident. Uh, We know that Cuba lacks a lot of maintenance in all of their equipment. Uh, So a a lightning bolt that uh, impacts whether it's a refinery or or an oil facility usually uh, can be handled, again, if the equipment is well maintained. Uh, but I think it's too early to tell uh, officially. Yes, it's supposed to have been a lightning strike. This port uh, in this facility in Matanzas is the largest on the island. What do you know about the condition of the equipment and the infrastructure there? Well, as you said, it's a two million plus uh, barrels of storage facility, both for crude oil and fuel oil. Uh, it seems that the docks were not impacted. Uh, So that means that tankers then can still come in, uh, but it will take weeks uh, to determine not only what is the status of the four remaining operable tankers, tanks, uh, but also the whole infrastructure. Remember, you have a series of pumps and pipelines that interconnect all of these tanks. So I think it will be four to six weeks at least uh, if those other four tanks can come on stream and on service. And so what about the state of energy infrastructure beyond this port uh, in terms of the electricity? As much of this fuel oil was used to, uh, to generate electricity for the island. That's what's going to make matters worse. Uh, Cuba's electric power system uh, has been at despair uh, uh, maintenance uh, for the last uh, three to five years. Uh, last night, last night, for example, at peak hour, there were 1,200 megawatt deficit. Uh, brownouts are as long as 12 hours. 
um, half of the 20 power stations throughout the eight thermoelectric plants are out of service uh, because these are units that are 45 plus years old and they require heavy capital maintenance, which they haven't had. Uh, so it's a very difficult situation without a fuel crisis. Right. Uh, so you can imagine the burden that this is going to put uh, on the Cuban people and their power supply. What options do what options does Cuba have in terms of just the supply of oil to generate electricity, given that half of the storage tanks here in this port uh, have been destroyed? Well, again, uh, very difficult. There is a large tanker that's coming in uh, tomorrow, uh, 150,000 tons, which was due to come into the port of Matanzas. It cannot come into Matanzas because, again, it's one of those large tankers. Where's it coming from? Uh, so now they're looking to lighter the tanker offshore into smaller vessels. Mm. Uh, so the whole system is going to be back up. Uh, storage facilities that are now running dry uh, because their fuel is being used, um, uh, you know, have to be refilled. So I think the next 60 days are going to be crucial. There is no solution to this problem, by the way, short-term solution. Uh, either for the power plants or for the terminal. Uh, so Cuba is going to have a very, very tough six months. And remember, we are now facing hurricane season, right? Yeah. Uh, which is another possible threat. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to remind us of that here, 90 miles away from Havana in South Florida. And you certainly know that as well in South Texas. Uh, where the, the oil tanker that you mentioned is, is coming into uh, uh, Cuba uh, this weekend. Where's that oil coming from? <laughs> it is the Laguna, and it's coming in with 700,000 barrels of Russian crude, Russian uh, Urals. Uh, it's supposed to come to Matanzas to then be diverted in small tankers to the Havana refinery, where it was going to be processed. Uh, now, the latest news that we have as of last night is that it's going to the port of Antilla, in which there's an offshore loading buoy, and they'll try to lighter uh, the tanker mm -hmm. there and then transfer the oil to uh, the refinery in Havana. In fact, Mexico is supplying Cuba with a cargo of gasoline. Uh, that tells us that the Cubans are already expecting that the Havana refinery most likely will be out of service for a while. I was going to ask, a lot comes out of crude oil. Uh, there's a reason why that adjective crude is used in describing oil, because it has to get refined for folks to use it for various different purposes, everything from diesel to gasoline to kerosene. Uh, what does uh, this uh, this fire this week in this uh, port mean for all the different types of distillates that can power an economy that that need to, that are needed to power the what's left of the Cuban economy? Well, that's a very good point. In fact, it's not only the Cuban economy for but the Cuban people. Cuban people lately have been switching to LPG as a fuel in their homes. That's Those propane are the, gas. You know, Right, the bottle gas, and uh, they're running out of that. So when they were without electricity, at, at least they had the LPG uh, bottle gas to cook and so on. Now that's being impacted also. Uh, so as you can see, it's a domino effect. Uh, oil, as you said, is not only oil, it's diesel. By the way, there were lines at the service stations in Havana last night, not because of the lack of fuel, but because of the lack of electricity. Uh, to allow the pumps to work. Uh, so very, very difficult and challenging situation for the country. Jorge Pino has been with us, University of Texas at Austin, Director of Latin America and the Caribbean Energy Program. Jorge, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. WLRN's America's editor, Tim Padgett, has been reporting on this fire, watching it here in South Florida. What has been the international response over the last week to the blaze itself, the disaster as it was playing out, in addition to now what's going to be obviously a big need to try to repower Cuba in terms of the the fuel? Well, you did see a few of Cuba's allies, political allies in the hemisphere, in particular Mexico and Venezuela, come to the firefighting effort there. Uh, I think that did a lot to help uh, the Cuban firefighter uh, infrastructure there get this blaze contained, although it took five days. So yeah. that tells you how, how tough this fire was to put out. Colombia also stepped in uh, with some help. And uh, but again, as I as, as I mentioned, this was mainly Cuba's allies in the hemisphere who, who came to the, you know, to their call. Were they invited were, or, or did they just show up? Well, this was this is what Cuba claims is that they put out an international, a general international call for uh, not only technical, but also material, help, equipment, personnel, et cetera, and that Mexico, Venezuela, and Colombia, which will remind you, Colombia is now an ally of, of Cuba because its new president mm-hmm. is a leftist, uh, uh, Gustavo Petro. And so they, they will say then that those three countries then heeded that international call and came to the rescue. Uh, one one country noticeably missing from that list, of course, is the United States. Yes. And yeah, that's that's the big bone of contention right now. And, and well, explain that bone of contention here. Well, the United States claims that it was asked for technical support by, by the Cuban government, meaning advice, the kind of thing you can do over the phone yeah. to help them, and that they did give that. And Cuba does acknowledge that the United States offered that. Now, here's where things get uh, typically U.S.-Cuba relations-wise. <laughs> uh, Which is murky uh, and, and rhetoric. Murky and, and, just, and just inscrutable. Um, the United States insists that it never received a direct request from the Cuba government for material help. And it's and it claims, and that's this is not surprising, that it needs that direct request as part of protocol for mm-hmm. these kinds of things. The Cuban government, however, is saying, well, the United States should have realized that when we put out the international call for help, that means we were asking for material help from the U.S. too. So, but, but again, Cuba was being very opaque about this because on the one hand, it really doesn't want U.S. or Yankee help in these kinds of instances because it doesn't want to admit that it needs it. On the other hand, it likes to be able when, you know, all the dust is settled, it likes to be able to turn around and say, hey, the Yankees didn't help us. Uh, They want it both ways. In the meantime, the Cubans on the island who had already been suffering through just a gosh awful uh, economic uh, scenario, just exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, are now dealing as Jorge just uh, you know told us of 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 the threat of more blackouts of the inability to get uh, what gasoline is on the island out of the pumps because of uh, electrical blackouts. Uh, last summer there were street protests and right. we saw the Cuban regime really crack down on uh, on the on the dissent. What's the environment like this summer? The environment is going to turn, at least in the the minds and emotions of Cubans, you're going to see, I think, the environment return to what we saw last summer. Mm. Those unprecedented island-wide anti-government protests last summer were sparked in large part uh, originally by frustration over power outages uh, from, from, from town to town in Cuba. 
now you're going to have even worse power outages in the height of the summer heat and the storm season, as we were just as you were just referring to. And the Cuban regime is going to have its hands full trying to contain that kind of emote, that anger again, despite the fact, as you mentioned, that since last summer's protests, they have suppressed that dissent and, and very harshly, uh, particularly in the courts. But still, they're going to have this 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 anger on their hands to deal with. What has been some of the initial response from civil society groups on the island to the regime's initial response and ability to contain not only the fire itself, the literal fire, but of right. course the economic fallout that's now going to happen because of the energy supply crunch? This is only going to heighten the, the, the Cuban public anger because, as Jorge pointed out, it's only going to showcase that decrepit maintenance situation for vital infrastructure like energy in Cuba. The other thing you're going to see is a, is a more human complaint. Uh, you mentioned the 14 firefighters right. that are still missing to dead. Those, those 14, there's a big question that you're seeing in independent Cuban media right now about were they really firefighters or were they 17 to 19 year old kids hmm. who were simply finishing their military service who were sort of dragooned into going in to help put out this fire and may have been, they're missing, they may have been killed when the second tank caught fire, which was unexpected, yeah. uh, when that tank caught fire and exploded. That in and of itself is going to cause an added dimension of anger amongst the Cuban public. Human tragedy layered upon exactly. human tragedy for those individuals, families, and the Cubans on the island. Right. Tim Padgett covers the Americas and the Caribbean for us here at WLRN. Always a pleasure, Tim. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Tom, and good luck. Thank you very much. Still to come on this program, how do you judge the candidates on your ballot for judge? And what are the stakes of who sits on the bench in local courts? We want to hear from you. Have you opened up that vote-by-mail ballot and looked at the judge races? How are you deciding where and whom you vote for? 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. Voting is underway for the August election. The voting season is here. Vote-by-mail ballots have been sent out. Early voting already underway or about to start across South Florida. Election day just a week and a half away. Now, as you look at your ballot, most of the races you are asked to decide likely will be for judges, circuit court, and county court. Now, these are nonpartisan races with very little visibility except among those steeped in South Florida's legal community. So how do you decide who gets your vote to sit on the bench? Is it judicial temperament? Where do you find that information? Is it someone whose name you vaguely recognize? And what are the stakes about electing someone who sits on the bench in our local courts? 800-743-WLRN, our phone number. Do you flip a coin? Is it is it some other more sophisticated way that you decide who gets your vote for these judicial positions? 800-743-WLRN. Opinion page writers and editors along with us now, Nancy Ankrum from our news partner, the Miami Herald, Steve Bosquet, holds down the uh, op-ed page at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Doug Lyons is an award-winning editorial writer at the Palm Beach Post. To the three of you, welcome back to WLRN. Great to have you. Nancy, let's start here with the stakes. What's at stake with these judicial races crowding our ballot? You know, the stakes are very, very high, which is why <clears throat> we on the Miami Herald editorial board consider our judicial recommendations the most important ones that we do. Hmm. The thing is, um, 
once people are on the bench, once candidates are on the bench, they often disappear. We are not, and when I say we, the community at large really does not come in contact with them, though people who have to be in court, either jurors or, um, you know, defendants, mm -hmm. plaintiffs, they do have to be in court. But by and large, the majority of us do not see how a judge behaves on the bench, how a judge treats members of the public, uh, whether a judge has done his or her homework, how they treat the prosecutors. Do they seem to favor the defense? Do they know the law? Mm -hmm. And so the uh, our editorial board spends a lot of time interviewing the judicial candidates who will talk to us. And uh, this year, I think just about everyone will did talk to us. We do a lot of background checking. We talk to attorneys. We talk to people in the def public defender's office and the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, state attorney's office mm -hmm. off the record on background before making our decision. Um, the stakes, let me just say this, the stakes are high. Yeah. Uh, Doug Lyons, let me get uh, your response there to uh, to this idea of what the stakes are for voters when electing judges. And uh, do you agree with Nancy that uh, the judicial uh, endorsements that uh, your editorial page makes are the most important endorsements, even given, you know, a gubernatorial race and a U.S. Senate race this year? I would concur with everything that Nancy said. Um, and yes, I, I, I think it is more important. I mean, you get an idea of what um, candidates for governor or candidates for state house, you know, you can get an idea of how they stand on various issues. Um, for judicial candidates, it's a little different. They cannot get out in the public and say, I favor gun control or I favor a woman's right to choose because, you know, by ethics, ethics uh, restrictions, they have to be impartial. So it is a little more difficult. And, and you know, our readers, you know, clamor for information about about judicial candidates. And I and I kind of feel for them. It, it's, it's tough because unless you're in front of a judge, you have no idea how a judge is going to how a judge is going to rule. And judges have power. In, they can find you. In, indeed, they they can they can find you. They can also uh, you know uh, uh, make you spend time uh, in, in in jail or prison. As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, Steve Bosquet uh, with the uh, South Florida Sun Sentinel. Uh, Steve, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself there to join our conversation as we talk about the judicial races on uh, voters' ballots here in South Florida. The qualifications to uh, to to run for a, a judge's position, a local judge's position, you have to have the right to vote in the county you live and be a member of the Florida Bar for at least five years. Steve, you spoke to a lot of judicial candidates this election cycle. What struck out? What struck you about the conversation with the candidates and their desire to sit on the bench? Well, thanks, Tom. And uh, yes, uh, we have we have six contested judicial races in Broward County. You know, first of all, I'm going to say at the top, as someone who's walked the halls of that courthouse in Fort Lauderdale for a very long time, there's no more political place in Broward County than that courthouse. <laughs> Even though the uh, elections are nonpartisan. That's right. The elections are nonpartisan. The candidates can't talk about politics, but everybody, every judge, every bailiff, every clerk has an opinion about Judge so-and-so. <laughs> 
we we tried the further down the ballot you go, oftentimes the less informed voters are, and that's not to criticize voters, but I agree with what Nancy and Doug said. Uh, our readers don't need a whole lot of guidance from us as to whether to vote for Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed in the Democratic primary for governor. They can figure that race out on their own. Uh, we're happy to offer our guidance and our opinion, and we have, uh, as has the, the Herald. And but um, what? And, and I, I judge this by phone calls and emails from readers. So you know wh where people want um, a guidance because they know that the Herald and the Sun Sentinel. We don't have an axe to grind in terms of who gets on the bench other than good judges, uh, people with integrity, people who uh, treat all litigants respectfully. You know, mm -hmm. in Broward, this Broward, first of all, has a history of problem judges, judges being uh, reprimanded, judges being in many cases forced to resign. Yeah. You know, if you see investigations. Uh, Steve, why elect judges in Florida? Uh it's an age-old debate that, that that probably will never uh, the system will probably never change. Uh, date, dating to its earliest days, the state of Florida uh, began and developed as a place where uh, you know a rural electorate felt that the more people who are elected to public office, that that creates greater accountability. That's really not true in every instance. Yeah, Nancy, you you had said that in fact that once a judge. Uh, gets uh, him or herself elected to a bench, oftentimes they can disappear into the legal ether that is that uh, community only to appear at uh, re-election time in the public. Absolutely. And uh, we too, we wrote this year that uh, our displeasure at electing judges um, and preferring, and, and this is a years long, I think decades long yeah. preference. Oh yeah of uh, merit, you know, merit retention. In fact, we re we recommended against two sitting judges, something that we oh. are reluctant to do, but uh, we did it nonetheless. We were concerned about uh, behavior uh, mm -hmm. in, in both instances. Yeah. We're talking about judicial elections here in South Florida, uh, usually down ballot elections. They don't get a lot of time and attention and oxygen, certainly when talking about politics, but there they are for everybody to decide on your ballot, uh, GOP, Democrat, uh, NPA, they are on everybody's ballot. How do you decide, uh, which judge to select to sit on the bench? 800-743-95- 76. Maybe you're in the legal community and, and can help uh, others out uh, understanding this process and how you decide. 800-743-WLRN. We're speaking with the editorial page editors and writers of the South Florida uh, Sun Sentinel. Steve Bosquet is with us, Nancy Ankrum with the Miami Herald, and Doug Lyons with the Palm Beach Post. Now, for years... For years, Nancy, uh, judicial candidates have been known to use and sometimes even change their names to appeal to voters. Some candidates emphasizing uh, uh, surnames or maiden names or uh, uh, family names when it's a name perhaps they don't use or have not used professionally. And we saw that in Miami-Dade this time around. It's a very cynical, and it does play to... Um, feelings of tribalism, uh, ethnic loyalties. And we have seen um, some candidates this year um, add a Hispanic or a Hispanic sounding name. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's their husband's name or uh, uh, that they never, and they never used it uh, professionally, but whoop, 
you know, suddenly there's a hyphen. And uh, again, it is uh, very cynical. And unfortunately, it it works. Whether um, this candidate, a candidate, is uh, really qualified or not. Doug, what role uh, has race played for candidates as they make their bid to gain some kind of attention, some kind of visibility for voters? Well, it depends on the race. I mean, you can look at um, the governor's appointment to the Supreme Court, and race had a race had a significant uh, influence on that. Um, I, you know, I, I'd like to go back to something that Nancy said about uh, her point about judges disappearing. Mm-hmm. In, in Palm Beach County, we had several races where where the judges drew no opposition. Mm-hmm. In fact, we only had two contested races: one on the circuit court level, and one on the um, on the um, county right. the county court level. And ironically, the county court level race in our in our county, the incumbent who's been on the bench for twenty years. Has, has, is spending over $100,000 to keep his seat. Now, you would think that on one hand, um, that's a lot of money, but, you know, Palm Beach is a big county. And I just think once these judges get on the bench, they really don't want, they, they would rather just sail through in the next election without much opposition. And when it when opposition comes, I, I guess they have to raise a lot of money to defend their seat. It's a difficult position. Uh, A proper judge wants to uh, stay open-minded, not take a public position, as uh, the candidates will say, on any issue that may come before the court, right? That's a phrase that we've heard oftentimes when uh, a Supreme Court nominee is facing questioning, sometimes withering questioning by the uh, United States Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, But local judges also uh, can answer questions uh, that way. Uh, Let's hear from Kathy, who's been listening in Miami Beach. Uh, Kathy, appreciate the phone call and the listenership. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Love NPR. Um, I'm an attorney. I've been practicing for about 20 years. I went to law school in my 50s. I am a litigator. I have been in criminal court. I have been in civil court. Um, Some people become judges because, one, they've made their money and they really love the law and they want to serve the public and they like putting on the robe and being in charge. Nothing wrong with that. Some people do it because they have difficulty making a living in private practice. And this is, although not a huge salary, it's a guaranteed salary, and many judges don't put in a 40-hour work week. Look at the cars in the parking lot. Then there are people that run for various reasons. There are good judges. There are bad judges. The main thing is it's hard to find out about them, but here's my little tip. There's a lawyer on every corner. There's one in every family, every neighborhood, every church. Find a lawyer. Ask a lawyer, have you appeared in front of these judges? What do you think? And then you'll find out, even though lawyers are not allowed to criticize judges, people can give you recommendations. So also be suspicious if someone is, you know, if you don't like the way their ads sound, like they're out to save the world or they're so wonderful, and then use the Internet. Find out if what they're saying is really true. So that's my suggestion. And thank you, NPR. You are the savior of our democracy. <laughs> Counselor, we appreciate that advice there for the sidebar from Miami Beach. Kathy giving us a call here on the South Florida <laughs> Roundup. Uh, Michael also is calling in and listening. Uh, Michael, you're an attorney as well? I'm from Delray Beach. We've met before on your last day at the Nightly Business Report in front of the Cocoa Cove Library. I don't know if you remember, <laughs> a while ago. I do, as a matter of fact, Michael. Well, uh, as as luck would have it, this is my final broadcast I, on the South I, Florida Roundup as well. I so know, maybe I, there's I something heard. in the stars between you and I. I. But I, go I, ahead, make I your wondering. point, sir. 
Well, I'm a consumer protection attorney, which is very unique, and most judges have never had a consumer protection case in their lives. And what I look at and I tell people that you want someone who's well-rounded in family law and civil law and criminal law and perhaps probate, as opposed to assistant uh, state attorneys who've practiced their entire lives in criminal court, and then I'm in front of them in civil court, and I'm their guinea pig until they get up to speed. And it's very easy to look at their website and see what's their practice, what's it composed of. It's only one thing. Perhaps you'd like their uh, their opponent who's varied in different areas of law, and perhaps a few trials in those areas of law so that when they get on the bench, they know what's going on versus, huh, I've never heard of this thing. Can you educate me? That type of mm-hmm. uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, is the best type of judge who is well-rounded. Michael, appreciate that uh, tip there. Good luck in Washington. (laughs) Thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate your uh, listenership here at WLRN. Uh, James in Palmetto Bay, you're you're up for electing, continuing to elect judges. Go ahead, James. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, I've been an attorney for over 50 years. I've practiced in front of appointed judges. I've practiced in front of elected judges. Uh, Quite frankly, the, uh, the statement of the uh, speaker a few moments ago that was advocating for eliminating uh, elections of the judges uh, judges in favor of appointment uh, certainly has uh, no grasp of reality with respect to the, the amount of politics that uh, that filters into the appointment of judges. Uh, it's particularly uh, a problem uh, when one party controls the, uh, the governorship mm-hmm. and that that uh, uh, that appointment over a period of time can essentially result in a almost a total monopoly mm. of uh, judges who are towed to a particular uh, ideological uh, line. Uh, as bad as it may be, uh, and certainly with respect to the uh, amount of money necessary to run a political race, uh, that's not a good thing. But uh, standing for election keeps a person humble keeps them close to the public, and quite frankly, if there's a better idea, I don't know what it is. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. James, I appreciate the, that uh, perspective as well. Nancy, how about that idea? If, if, yeah, if not I voters, hear Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it is a political process. Yeah. It really, really is. And um, now that, it, it and it has almost always been a political process, but quality and integrity really have come into play with previous administrations. And uh, I would agree. I think it would be a scarier prospect uh, as we see so many of our, I guess, constitution-bound policies heading off the rails. Hmm. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about politics and the bench. These are nonpartisan uh, elections, uh, but as the point has been made by James in Palmetto Bay and, and the point made by the opinion writers here, uh, the politics is clearly in play. As Steve Vosquez said, there's no more political place in Broward County than the Broward County court, Courthouse, according to Steve Vosquez. Uh, familiar names are appearing on the ballots for different voters here. In Miami-Dade County Court, uh, Rene de la Portilla is running, a former state representative as a Republican. In Broward County, Gary Farmer is running for Broward County Circuit Court, a Democratic state senator. Uh, how, how, how should we think of these new nonpartisan positions that these clearly formerly partisan 
uh, politicians have held in the past, Steve Busquet? Well, um, the voters should should factor that into the equation. And Gary Farmer is a good example. We, uh, my, our newspaper recommended Gary Farmer in a three-way judicial race for an open circuit court seat. Uh, Gary Farmer got himself into a little bit of trouble in this campaign. He went to a political event in Tamarack one night and in response to a question from somebody in the audience said sort of in passing, I have always been a Democrat. Right. Words to that words to that effect. Right. He's he is he is because of his strong name identification, name recognition, uh, you know, we endorsed Farmer uh, as just as much because Farmer has a very strong legal background. Uh, you know, you may not like his politics, and that's for every voter to decide. He is uh, firmly established as a liberal Democrat, a uh, staunch critic of the DeSantis administration, but he's got a strong, strong legal background. And the other two candidates were not particularly impressive. So there you have it, right there. But so uh, you made it on the to to the to Michael's point. One of our callers, you were you were looking at the background and the experience there with uh, soon to be former Senator Farmer. But did it give pause uh, the clearly uh, you know partisan career that uh, that he has had? Yes, it did. Um, it did because um, but he's but he's always been uh, a proponent of something that we editorially uh, strongly in favor of, which is which is maximizing access. To the court system, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and and giving people literally their day in court. Uh, we've got we're, a little bit of unease with somebody being that partisan moving to the bench. But he's not the first legislator in Broward or Dade County to move from from a from a very a partisan office to a, to a nonpartisan office with a robe. Yeah, uh, uh, far from it. Nancy, what what about this idea of of nonpartisanship in these judges' races? Really, only in title only. Yeah, I I would agree. And um, in in our community, <clears throat> also um, our nonpartisan school board yep. and our nonpartisan county commission mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are uh, really under pressure to the point where our governor, I've never seen this before, have has made endorsements of a school board of school board candidates and um, and county commission candidates. And I think that is all of a piece with the desire to introduce politics onto these local boards. As it pertains to judges, we um, uh, we recommended against one sitting judge, an incumbent, who attended um, a rally that turned into, it, it actually it was a candidate's forum, but it turned into a rally, a Christian family um, coalition luncheon turned into a rally um, to celebrate um, the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I clearly he says, look, this was on my calendar for weeks before. Understood. But um, we were very, very concerned about his presence there. Very, very concerned that he attended or stayed there once it turned into that. Doug, how should voters uh, look at this partisanship? I I mean, I'll say creeping in. I mean, it's already there, but acknowledging it uh, uh, and voters are partisan. Yeah, I think Steve had it right. I mean, I think someone like Gary Farmer, you kind of have an idea of of his, you know, because of his of his history, you have an idea of what you're getting. The thing that kind of concerns me is the more subtle ways that politics interferes, um, influences judicial races. We have a, a circuit court race up here in Palm Beach County where both of the uh, 
uh, candidates were approached by the Federalist Society two years earlier to come to their convention in Orlando, mm -hmm. and it's since to be kind of vetted. Uh, one of the uh, candidates joined the Federalist Society, but later let her membership lapse. And the second one uh, just said, well, no, nah, this isn't my vibe mm -hmm. and decided not to not to participate. But let's face it. I mean, governors have control of the JNCs and they have control of the appointment process. And depending on your governor, if you have someone who's, you know, upfront and believes in openness, you know, you might get a, a different slate of candidates or, or uh, JNC mm -hmm. members than someone who loves the Federal Society. Yes. Yeah. Our current governor does. Federal Society is a conservative uh, legal organization and a JNC, a judicial nominating committee, groups of uh, of legal professionals that are put together for recommendations. Uh, folks, uh, stick oh. with us here. We got we oh. got to we got to move on here because we've got a doctor's appointment coming up. We're going to talk about negotiating medicine prices for <laughs> Medicare and how could that impact your budget here in South Florida. 800-743-WLRN. Medicare and prescription drug prices in your community. 800 7 Four three ninety five seventy six. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. The U.S. House of Representatives is expected to vote today, this Friday, on the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a package of actions that includes climate change spending, instituting a minimum corporate tax rate, and allowing the federal government for the first time through Medicare to negotiate prices for some prescription drugs. Elizabeth Rosenthal is with us now with Kaiser Health News. Elizabeth, welcome back to WLRN. South Florida has one of the highest proportions of people in the nation on Medicare. What could this bill do if it is made law? Well, and it is likely to be made law because it's expected that it will pass uh, the House today and then be signed by the president next week. Um, it's important for people on Medicare for several reasons. First of all, um, it is it uh, allows Medicare to negotiate prices on a very, very limited number of drugs. So don't expect it to influence everyone with the price negotiation aspect right away. But it's the first time the government has stated the principle that it has a right to negotiate with uh, drug manufacturers on a reasonable price for drugs in the U.S. Um, and as we know, we pay sometimes for yeah times more than anyone else in the world. You mentioned a limited list. Do we know what drugs would be on that <laughs> list? That's the next question, well, right, doctor? Well, that's the problem. There are all sorts of, of restrictions on what drugs can be on the list. They have to be a certain number of years out from patent, uh, from their patent. Um, they are uh, supposedly Medicare will choose each year the 10 most expensive drugs that, are, that they spend the most on uh, within a bunch of certain parameters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some level, it sounds like, wow, this is a glass half full. On the other hand, you can tell from the ads that pharma is running nonstop to fight this bill that it establishes a really important principle. Yeah. So people who are on certain high priced drugs will um, see the price go down. But more important than that, really, in the uh, the Deficit Reduction Act is it limits out-of-pocket spending for Medicare beneficiaries so that um, you, you, you know, we've now had this 
this thing where after you you go through what's called the donut hole, you're still responsible for 5% of your drugs on Medicare, and that just bankrupts people. So it really limits what people will have to pay who are lucky enough to be on Medicare. Right. If you're not if you're not lucky enough, you're out of luck. And so what's the potential impact on regular prescription insurance coverage in the uh, in the in the open market? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. I mean, some people have said, oh, well, you know, the pharmaceutical industry will react to this restriction in Medicare by raising prices outside of Medicare for the rest of us. Others have said, no, you know, this could serve as a new benchmark for insurers to say, we're not going to pay that much. You know, in other countries, it's a it's across the board. Even those that don't have national health insurance, they say this is what you can pay for a drug. So we'll have to see. I mean, one of the other, um, I think, uh, uh, fallouts is going to be that uh, pharmaceutical companies will will spend a lot of time and money trying to stay off that list of 10 drugs that are price negotiated <laughs> each year. Yeah, a lot of details here still to watch. Elizabeth Rosenthal with Kaiser Health News. Dr. Rosenthal, thanks for your time. Thank you. Nancy Ankrum, Steve Bosquet, Doug Lines, Miami Herald, Sun Sentinel, Palm Beach Post, opinion page editors and writers. Uh, I got a couple of minutes here, but uh, to all three of you, Nancy, we'll start with you. How does this play in South Florida, particularly when it comes to politics, do you think? Well, I think when it comes to to politics, I think Elizabeth's right. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. Uh, but this was passed and um, you know, I think that given the large amount of Medicare patients in our community and in South Florida more broadly, this really could have could be a beneficial uh, thing for them. It doesn't start until 2026. Right. So we're not going to be seeing anything immediately. And yes, it depends upon what drugs will be on the list by then. And I think it's due to grow between 2026 and 2029. It moves from but, uh, 10 uh, drugs to 20 drugs, I think, in that time. Right. Frame. Steve Bosquet, uh, is this a single issue, though, for some voters in Broward County, do you think, in the elections ahead? It is for some older voters. I think it is particularly in a place like, you know, the western part of Broward County, parts of Palm Beach County. I'm going to say this, Tom. I, I think that the Democrats have the upper hand on this issue. They've, they've had it for a long time. They're doing a big... Today, as we talk, today's the 87th anniversary of the Social Security program. Um, it's vital to so many people in, right. in Florida. And, and I think what's happened here is the Republicans took a real hit when Rick Scott proposed this plan to have Congress reauthorize entitlement programs every five years. And the Democrats just have, have they will refuse to let go. They're like a dog with a bone. Yeah, yeah. they're not going to let go of that proposal. Doug well, Lines, let me... Yeah. Most, I was going to say the most effective thing strategy is to scare seniors into thinking Medicare and Social Security is going away. Doug, I'll, I'll give you the last few seconds here. Uh, how about this in terms of an election issue for Democrats here in 22? Let me put it this way. I would hate to be Marco Rubio trying to defend my no vote on this bill. And he's up in a, in a competitive election with Val Demings. I'm sure I'm sure he's going to hear about that vote. So. I think it is a winning issue for Democrats. And Democrats also can say that this bill will give um, relief on insulin drugs mm -hmm. beginning next year. So they got something to campaign on. 
Uh, certainly one to watch as well, and we'll be covering it here on WLRN. Uh, Doug Lyons is an award-winning opinion page writer for the Palm Beach Post. Doug, thanks for your time today and sharing your Thank thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Steve Bosquet, always great to walk the halls of power and uh, other places with your reporter notebook and share it with us here. Steve is the editorial page editor at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Tom, and best of luck to you and your new vocation. Oh, I appreciate that, Steve, very much. Yeah. Nancy Anchor, my friend, always great to hear from you, the opinion page editor at the uh, Miami Herald. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. Going to miss you, Tom. Going to miss the three of you as well, uh, but appreciate all of your time here on the South Florida Roundup. Finally on the Roundup this week, this is my final Roundup here on WLRN. It's my final program. Now, I've resigned to take another position in public media outside of South Florida. It was nine years ago, this past June, that I was lucky enough to sit down in this chair in front of this microphone for the first time. It was just two days after the Miami Heat won the NBA championship. Lots of celebrations still happening, maybe a little bit groggy-eyed here on this Friday afternoon. Welcome to the Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Plenty of celebrations. We've had more than 400 programs to listen to one another since then, and it's been my honor to be here. We've been together celebrating the great times like a Heat championship. And the tough times, like the aftermath of Hurricane Irma. This week, two more residents of the Rehabilitation Center at Hollywood Hills die. They are the ninth and tenth deaths after the center lost electricity during Hurricane Irma. Navigating through the COVID-19 pandemic. This is the first time you and I have spoken, but I am hearing a lot of concern in your voice. Well, I'll tell you, this is a, a really bad day for me. My brother, he just turned positive today. Um, and I am currently pending my test right now, and I'll find out within... And the agonizing search for survivors in Surfside. What can you share with us in terms of the assistance that the town of Surfside, that it is receiving? What What's necessary 36 hours after this unimaginable tragedy? Hosting this program, and each time I've been lucky enough to bring you stories and voices and issues important to all of us, has been a privilege. So does that put at risk the Cuban-American vote in South Florida for the Republicans. We saw the number of confirmed locally transmitted Zika cases continue rising up to 20. From Delray Beach to Virginia Key, South Florida is spending millions of dollars to fix old sewer systems. There may be a new rail service in South Florida in the years ahead on one rail. We saw some new forecasts about how high the seas will get in It was South a deadly Florida. and violent Memorial Day weekend across Miami-Dade County. In May, you warned of that bloody summer. Was it a bloody summer? Resident Residential boundaries, prisoners on your own island. It is expensive to live in South Florida. People pay a lot for housing. While Good afternoon from Havana, from the uh, Cuban Press Center. Florida Roundup today, live from the Miami Book Fair. It is great to be at downtown Magic City. Welcome. Tom One Hudson. final question for the fishermen up here. What's the best bait for stone crab trap? <laughs> uh, that's an easy, easy answer. And how long should you let it soak? Oh, it, we have a huge problem with iguanas. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not native. Yep. And I will tell you that iguanas make about the best stone crab. Oh, there you go. There you go. All right. All of it. Zika, Parkland, busted sewer pipes, sea level rise, algae, homelessness, housing affordability, lots and lots and lots of politics and policymaking. We tackled it all. And maybe that's why one former guest, a veteran journalist, once described the South Florida Roundup as a weekly civics lesson. Well, maybe, but I hope it's been more than that, a place to hear and be heard. Hi, yes. Um, knowing Trinidad quite well, I know that it's a very rich oil-producing country. The reason for my call, everybody mentions all the reasons for the increased cost. And nobody's talking about how 
vacation rentals, Airbnb, VRBO. This is John, and I'm in uh, Wilson Manors, uh, Florida, and I recently closed on a condominium. Thank you so uh, much for taking my call. I'm, I'm a Venezuelan. I was born in Venezuela, and I'm half American. My uh, comment or question is, why does it seem as though the landlords are being squeezed? I mean, you would think... So to you, the listeners, thank you. In a world with endless competition for your time and attention, you've chosen to spend some of it with WLRN. I'm grateful for that. And it's something we do not take for granted. The people I've been fortunate enough to work with each day here at WLRN don't take it for granted either. You know, complaining about the news media can be easy. There's lots of stuff out there. Masquerading is honest journalism. Don't be fooled by it simply because it confirms your opinion. Don't dismiss it because it runs against what you may believe. Resist the urge to reduce real journalism to a partisan position. The world, our community, it's not simple. Neither is the news. And we embrace that complexity here, and so do you. Intent matters. Our goal is to inform you and engage with you. If it's to persuade you to be something, it's to be connected to and curious about your community. WLRN's Danny Rivero and Wilkin Brutus will be hosting this program in the weeks ahead. They're smart and passionate journalists backed by the power of the news staff, WLRN, and your support. They're going to be great. I want to thank my wife and sons for their enduring support of this pursuit of journalism, this pursuit of something real and true. My deep gratitude to WLRN CEO John Labonia for his vision of building an independent journalism organization while other news outlets are shrinking. For almost the past 10 years, I've had the luck to work with some of the best journalists, engineers, hosts, membership folks, underwriting account executives, administrative professionals, managers, IT and web professionals, and others with one goal in mind, continuously improving WLRN for all of South Florida. Their work has been a constant source of inspiration. The independent, local journalism of WLRN is needed now more than ever. Thanks for supporting it. And that'll do it this week for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohn. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor. Matea Sanchez is the digital editor. The director of radio operations at WLRN and our program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and supporting WLRN. WLRN Public Media. Not so fast, Tom Hudson. Hi, it's Peter J. Mayer. It's VP of WLRN Radio. Tom, I just want to say that much more than an incredibly talented host and producer, you've elevated our news department and really the entire station to new heights of excellence. And you did it all with boundless humanity and compassion. Thanks for all of it, Tom. And all the best in your new role as Chief Content Officer for the great public radio station WAMU in Washington, D.C. We will miss you, sir. <laughs>